0: Now, the Interpreter Show with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics.
1: We're back. This is our second hour of Interpreter Radio which is brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation, the mission of which is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship by providing accurate information to the public about the church. The Interpreter Foundation makes available to everyone on the Internet its scholarship for free on a wide variety of subjects, which you can find at interpreterfoundation.org. The Interpreter Foundation defends the Church against misunderstandings and criticisms, and although it does all of these things, it is not owned, controlled, or affiliated directly with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so whatever material the Foundation publishes and whatever we say in this broadcast is strictly our own responsibility. And this hour of... The Interpreter Foundation is also sponsored by the Kimber Academy, which is a marvelous K through 12 private school that unlike public schools keeps God in the classroom while providing an outstanding academic school for your child K through 12. Kimber Academy is a special place where teachers guide students through faith with morality and quality education in an engaging curriculum. At the Kimber Academy, every parent's voice is heard. In Utah, Kimber Academy is located in Linden, Utah. There are many other locations throughout the United States. If you'd like to find out if Kimber Academy is a good match for your students, call the director in Linden, Jessica Bianco, at area code 801-382-7158, director Jessica Bianco, 801-382-7158, or go to KimberSchool.com on the internet, that's KimberSchool.com. And to reintroduce our co-hosts for this hour, with us by phone, Brent Gardner, Terry Hutchison in studio, and I'm co-hosting Martin Tanner. This second hour... Terry, why don't you introduce for our <laughs> listeners?
0: Well, thank you, Martin. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to uh, to welcome Brant to the program with us. We, Martin and I, are usually together on the fifth Sunday, and it's always rewarding. And we, we often try and have authors. So um, Brant has graciously agreed to come on. Our last guest happened to be uh, Grant Hardy, who did the annotated Book of Mormon, um, a book that really Martin really and nice him. to know that I can follow him. <laughs> yeah, well, your book came out later than his. So, I mean, that's oh, the only good. reason you're following it.
1: <laughs> there you go. Chronological order. Okay, yes. there you go. However, uh, right.
0: I, I would indicate for the listeners that um, one of the things about Interpreter is its website. You go to the InterpreterFoundation.org, and there's all kinds of material there. And if you go to the journal, you'll see... I don't know how many articles from Brant Gardner. In fact, he had one just last, just on December the eighth, which was a review of uh, Richard Bushman's book about the Golden Plates, which uh, yes. I found fascinating, and I appreciated your yeah, review. Yeah, it was an interesting book. You know, you you've done several book reviews. Um, I, I like the way you approached the producing. Oh, uh, was it producing? Uh, Oh, there it is. Producing Ancient Scripture. Um, and and I, I thought you threaded the needle pretty well in writing from a faithful perspective, a book that's not really intended to be faithful. I, and by that, yeah. I don't mean it was intended to be unfaithful. And we do have some of that. But um, it just I, I've really appreciated what you've done. One of the last long projects you did was published in Interpreter in 2019 it was called labor diligently to write so that was your last project i'm going to ask you to describe that briefly um we'll talk a little bit about second witness which is your six volume commentary on the book of mormon you've had a couple of shorter books since then as well Um, what about the translation process one about the historical you know kind of archaeology processes of the book of mormon and then you have two new ones that just came out uh, in the past few weeks from uh, Greg Covert Books that we will be emphasizing the rest of the hour. But tell us a little bit about the how you've progressed from the early days when you did Second Witness to the follow-on volumes leading up to the projects that you've just released.
2: Yeah, and that's actually kind of the way I hoped that you would let me go through this because it's been sort of an interesting process. The Second Witness project started off as an online commentary as part of a uh, an e-list back when we had you know no bulletin boards you had to send everything out through email and uh the guy who owned this list asked me if i would you know try to do something he wanted to make it more like a magazine he said so give me something every week on the book of mormon i said well you know that's how do you come up with a topic every week and i said well i've got an idea let's just go through the book of mormon very slowly. I can do a chapter a week, and now I know what to talk about. And that's sort of where that one started and then took off uh, as a life of its own and ended up as second witness in six volumes and, you know, 12 years later. So that was, that was a rather monumental project, and I realized when it was done that, you know, that I liked it, that I thought it was a really important piece, but there, was a, there were a couple of things that I was missing. And the thing that I was missing is, you know, can I defend this Book of Mormon as, as, you know, the Word of God, as a revealed text? And I realized that there were sort of two aspects to it. And the next two books were actually, were always mentally conceived to be a pair. Uh, the first one started off talking about translation because there was no way I could talk about how the Book of Mormon might be historical if I didn't talk about translation because translation and how it appears in English makes so much difference in how we understand the text and what's behind it. So the first question I had to answer as I wanted to be able to say yes I believe that the Book of Mormon uh you know is an ancient text. I had to talk about how it was translated so then I could move on. And the next book was the companion to that which is you know why why would I believe it's a history in the first place? Why would it even need to be translated? And so the uh, the book called Traditions of the Fathers came after that as the, the, the book that was trying to look more at the history. And so the two of them together said, yeah, here's translation, here's how the translation would have worked, and then here's the reason why I believe it was a translation and not just uh, an imaginative work. Well, you know, after I did that, that was a lot of going through the text of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and I realized that, uh, you know, I think what we do as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when we approach all Scripture, let alone just the Book of Mormon, is we, we really don't read the whole books. We read the Scriptures that we like, and we may, you know, in our reading, read a chapter, but we kind of go through it almost, and we look for story. Uh, okay, I know that story. Uh, we look for verses. Cool, there's a verse I know. And and we kind of skip over the rest, and we don't ever look at it as a whole. And I got more and more interested in the Book of Mormon as a text. And so actually the next three books, Labor Diligently to Write and these last two that just came out, uh, have all been part of this project of saying, Of looking deeper into the text, look beyond what the stories are, look beyond whatever the doctrines might be, and try to get into the heads of the people who actually wrote those texts. What were they doing? Why did they write that way? How come things happen the way they do in the Book of Mormon? And so there's been sort of a progression for me from, you know, moving from, uh, you know, commentary on the text to the next two books that were sort of, examining the reasons why we can see it as an historical text, and then saying, yeah, well, understanding is an historical text. Let's go look at the text itself and see how it was constructed, what's what's unique about it. And, and sort of in the back of my mind has always been, you know, does this behave like a modern book or does it behave like an ancient book? And uh, my, my conclusion after Diving very deep into the subject is it doesn't behave like a modern book at all it, there's all kinds of really strange things where you know what what in the world do they do that for? Why does that happen in the text and so that's kind of where I am. It's in the last several years where I've spent my time at that level looking at the you know the creation level of this of the text
0: so you're your two new books. Uh, One of them is a a study book of Mormon, if you will. Now, Grant Hardy did his Maxwell Institute version. Uh, That's that used the church's official, official um, text from the book of Mormon itself, which was pretty unique that they gave him permission to do that. Um, The Oxford one has reverted back to the 1920 edition, which is in the public domain. Uh, And he said it was because he has more flexibility to, to do some formatting things with it but yours is even can i say farther out there is that <laughs> is that fair to say i mean look you yeah I'd be farther you, out you, there you go back to one way
2: to describe well
0: it. okay let's yeah. say farther back i mean maybe certainly farther back yeah Yeah, you know, farther out there really isn't all that much of the stretch i picture you a little as doc brown in back to the future i mean just you know you've come back to us from time and here it is but but we're we're using the the printer's manuscript with occasional yeah. supplements from the original a lot of but based on the work of royal skousen and you acknowledge that right right out of the gate in plates of mormon but you also sure. have a different order you have it in the dictation order that we have come to to kind of appreciate. And I think that's going to throw a lot of people off.
1: Well, hopefully it'll make them think as well. Well,
0: that's what I mean. It'll it'll, it'll take us out of our comfort zone and say, because it certainly did with me. And it's like, wait a minute here. I mean, and I remember one time saying to myself, you know, I'm just going to start at Mosiah because I've read first Nephi probably more than anybody in the church. Now, I'm I'm just teasing, but maybe not, because when we talked with Grant, I mean, we, we said First Nephi chapter 1 is obviously the most read chapter in the Book of Mormon. So here we are, we're starting with Mosiah. But, but there's a reason yeah. why you did this. So tell us, tell us why you selected the order of the books and, and what the dictation order was and, and what led to that thinking and how that would be useful to us.
2: Well, let, let's start with the dictation order when the 116 pages were lost and we use that term to define that set it may have been more than 116 pages of uh, 116 pages with the number of pages it took to replace whatever was lost so you know we use that term when i use it don bradley don't get unhappy with me i'm just using the label so when those were lost uh, they, they had to pick up translation once the lord gave them the opportunity to do so again And so everything was lost about the early part of the Nephite history, and they picked up where they left off, which is Mosiah, and not at the beginning of Mosiah, because we lost a a couple of chapters, who knows how many, at the beginning of Mosiah. So somewhere after the start of the Book of Mosiah, they started translating, and then they went all the way through and eventually got back to the small plates. So that's the historical development of the text. Because of the chronological order, uh, by the time you got to the printer's manuscript, of course, they had put the small plate material in to replace the historical material that had been lost. So it has always been at the beginning of our text. Now, why did we do it differently? Ultimately, uh, the the editor uh, Lloyd Erickson at Colford Books suggested it to me, and I immediately said yes, because I have thought for years now that we do Mormon a disservice by reading Nephi first. We really miss a lot of what Mormon is trying to do, because we read what Nephi is trying to do long before we ever get to Mormon. And Nephi wrote for a very, very different purpose. He, he didn't write the way Mormon did, he didn 't write for the reasons Mormon did, uh, Nephi had his own agenda, and because of when he wrote at the beginning, there are certain things that and one that I think I think, I think sets us up for uh, for a lot of hmm, what's the right word I don 't want to say errors because that's, that sounds you know, just uh, misimpressions let's put it that way, of, of the text. At the beginning of the Book of Mormon, when Nephi is writing, he has a brand new community, and he has to develop that community. And one of the ways you do that in the ancient world is to create the the origin story. And part of the origin story tends to have you, and this goes through multiple things in the old world, it appears to be, uh, a concept that Nephi brought with him. Uh, where you have a story that will have your ancient enemy, and so you define who we are as opposed to someone else. And obviously, that's the Lamanites. And the Lamanites get a bad rap early on. They're terrible. There's no redeeming qualities to them. Um, and when you read Nephi, you are ingrained to the idea that the Lamanites are the bad guys. And because we take that mentality with us when we go to Mormon, we miss that that isn't the way Lamanites are in Mormon's texts. There's still the prejudice there. But when you look at the way Mormon writes, the Lamanites will certainly come to battle against the Nephites, but what are the worst battles or the worst wars that ever happened? Well, they're instigated by apostate Nephites. They, you know, uh, instigate the Lamanites to come. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you get to to Mormon, Mormon does not directly blame the Lamanites. There's conflict there. They've always been there. But those aren't the bad guys. Mormon's bad guys are apostate Nephites and then Gadianton robbers. uh, And the Gadianton robbers are sort of the, the rebirth, if you will, of the secret combinations uh from the jaredites which ended
0: civilizations so you're going but to find this fascinating
2: writing to the Lamanites.
0: brent Go you're, you're going to find this fascinating have you ever talked to joe spencer about this idea about going with I'm mormon not sure first I've talked to joe's
2: yeah I, i'm not sure i've talked to him about that because
0: no. you'll find this fascinating i have a copy of his book from illinois called a word in season isaiah's reception in the book of mormon It may not not be out yet. yet. Um, He does exactly what you are doing in his analysis of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. He starts, the first half is called, the first section is Mormon's Isaiah. And then it's Nephi's Isaiah. And he specifically says that if you want to try and understand the use of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, we should do it because... Nephi's came at the back with the small plates and he approaches it from the original manuscript and the printer's manuscript just the way that you have indicated in your study of well, Book of Mormon. Yeah. So we we have come to that conclusion separately. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought that was I mean, when 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 you were talking about this, I mean I I you know, I've had your book for a little while from Coford and and uh, I was looking through it, and, and something was ringing a bell, and just the way you were talking right now reminded me that's exactly what Joe Spencer's doing with Isaiah. And, it, and so that'd be a microcosm of how to try and approach it, just like you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, again, the, the,
2: the, the Plates of Mormon book, Uh, is intended to be somewhat disruptive of our typical reading of the text. The paragraphing is is very, very different. The logic is very different. The sentences are new. Most people won't necessarily notice that, and I suspect that, you know, like 60% of them may be virtually the same. But they're new. Uh, You know, I started from scratch when I was uh, putting the sentences together. And then this idea of, you know, putting... The putting Mormon's text up front where it should be, with place markers for what's lost. Yeah. The the intent is that this is a text for people to think more deeply about the Book of Mormon, and because it's the printer's manuscript, this is early. Before uh, in in the last hour, we had talked about the the text of changing. Uh, the Mother of God to the Mother of the Son of God. Well, this is prior to that change. You know, Joseph Smith himself made that change in 1837, but it's not in the Printer's Manuscript, so it doesn't show up in that book. Um, so it's meant to take someone who is ready to to learn more about the Book of Mormon. Now, you mentioned Grant Hardy's, you know, two uh, you know, versions of. Uh, a study edition of the book of mormon with the one from oxford having a lot more uh, material with it from the standpoint of i would say maybe the the standard you know reader the basic sunday school person those are probably better texts than mine for sunday school because they break it up to in in, in ways that are more easily read they have internal headers that say here's here's the story you were looking for Um, and I think for a reader who wants sort of help with doctrine uh, or those kinds of issues, you know, that's where his books are pointed. This one's a little more esoteric in that it says, this is for somebody who really wants to know a little bit more about the development of the text and wants to think about it differently. You know, this should be a, a different kind of a read, and it wouldn't be, I would never recommend it as somebody's first read through the Book of Mormon. Uh, Maybe the
0: fourth, maybe the fifth. Yeah. Well, I I was talking... It's time to dig in deeper on it. Yeah. I was talking with one of my interpreter colleagues. We were talking about the SBL study Bible that just came out. And uh, he Mm -hmm. just said, I don't use a study Bible. And I'm going, well, no, duh. I'm not going to say who it is, but he has no need for a study Bible. But a guy like me needs a study (laughs) Bible, I can tell you. But a lot of people you know, have various needs for a study Book of Mormon or something else that, that goes along with that. But uh, it, it, I, I was talking with Grant Hardy about what, if, if he could see the gold plates, the original gold plates, what would he be looking for? So, for example, for me, I would want to see the word that Joseph Smith used to translate that, that pops up in the Book of Mormon is Jesus Christ. Is it Yahweh? Oh. What's the characters? <laughs> you know, something like that. Grant yeah. was completely different. He wanted to know what was the story with Mosiah I and how they got to Zarahemla and how they got the Mulekites to let all of a sudden them be the kings. He said, that yeah. must be a political drama that you can't put down. <laughs> and so Grant's all about oh, the absolutely. story. Grant's all about the story. And if you were gonna, if we right, were going right. to ask you about that, Brant, what would you want to <laughs> see in the gold plates?
2: Yeah, and, and all of this... T- It really goes back to what is it that you're most focused on when you're reading it. So uh, when we were talking in the last hour about the prophets, you know, Lehi and Nephi, who see the same vision, but see something different in it because they're focused on different things. Uh, So you'd be focused on that name. Grant is going to be focused on the story. My immediate reaction as soon as you said that was, I would try to find out what in the world was dividing uh, chapters and uh, how the headers were divided and whether or not they were. Now, that's where I've been lately.
0: <laughs> you know, that's the beauty of it. And that's why all of these study Book of Mormons and everything can, can make a big difference. You know, you, you were talking about how you we're trying to encourage us to read the Book of Mormon, and interact with the characters themselves. And I've talked Mm -hmm. about this on the air before, but I was um, commuting between St. George and Vegas with some friends of mine. We had law offices in Vegas, we had law offices in St. George. And uh, one day uh, we would just have memorable conversations while we were driving. You know, you'd you'd leave, you'd drive an hour and a half, 45, hour 45, then you come back. Um, We were talking about Second Nephi 2. As you, know, as, mm-hmm. as you do. I mean, if, if you're in a car with another faithful member and you're eventually going to get around to that. And I remember distinctly yeah. my friend, who's now on a mission, said, and here's where Lehi's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Now, oh my. It, it was immediately that reaction from both of us. Oh, my, did you really just say that? Did you think that? But it wasn't in the sense that it was Lehigh's apostate. He was so engaged with his study of what Lehigh had to say. Now, this guy's a trial attorney, and he was a phenomenal trial attorney who would argue his case, study it, research it out, back and forth with the dialogue. He would engage with Lehi at that level. And uh, I knew yeah. what he meant. We both laughed about it, and we kind of passed it off. But to me, it's always been an example of how Fundamentally, I would like to deal with these people in the Book of Mormon. I've always tried to initiate dreams where I dream about them. Never. Not one time. Not one time. I just can't. I can't manufacture it. Now, maybe that sets me out there. I don't know, Brant, but I'm telling you that uh, that's how anxious we, at least that's how anxious I personally am to engage with the the men in the Book of Mormon and, and, and the writers.
1: So, what made yeah. you decide to write this this book i this There's a story behind this how this actually came about for you Wait, which one the the plates of Mormon yes
2: yeah you know the origin of this thing was pure curiosity. it was opportunity and curiosity um, i I knew that when the Book of Mormon Printer's manuscript was given to John Gilbert at Grandin Press. You know, it has no paragraphs. It has no punctuation to speak of. It has random capitalization. And you've got to make sense of this thing. And I've always wondered, you know, what was it like? What, What would that process be like? And then, of course, the Church uh, purchased the printer's manuscript, and the Joseph Smith papers uh, conveniently put it online. And I said, well, I know what I can do. And so I <laughs> conveniently uh, downloaded the text, and uh, I said, I, you know, I wonder what I would do if I had that task. You know, I've, I've read the Book of Mormon, well, John Gilbert didn't even read it through the first time. I mean, he just you know, put paragraphs and sentences in. He didn't know what he was reading. Uh, he wasn't a member of the church. He didn't particularly care. Didn't believe in the Book of Mormon. So I have the few advantages over him, I would think. And so I thought, like, you know, how would I do it? What would I do? And so that's how the project began. And then it just sort of spiraled out of that. And you know, I couldn't stop. I said, oh boy, this is this is interesting. Now what would I do? Okay, wait a minute. What am I what am I finding here? And then what happened is there were many things that showed up either in the labor, uh, labor diligently to write book and, or in, um, uh, this, uh, engraved upon plates printed upon paper. A lot of those things fell out of what I was doing and what I was finding there. Um, uh, and so they all sort of worked together. I was learning about the text of the manuscript while I was doing that process. Um, uh, And so it started off as pure curiosity and then just grew into something that I, the more I worked on it, the more I said to myself,
1: you know, somebody else might get some value out of this. Let's see what we can do with it. That's a great story. That's a great story. Thank you.
0: Now, you've got a companion volume to it called Engraven Upon Plates, Printed Upon Paper. Tell us a little bit about that and then tell us how that came about in, you know, hand in hand with the Plates of Mormon.
2: Yeah, a a lot of what was happening, well, sections of what ended up in that engraven upon plates, printed upon paper book, came out of the experience I had of going through the text and putting sentences together. For example, one of the things that I found as I was going through the printer's manuscript is that, boy, there's a lot of incomplete sentences in in the book of Mormon and I would look them up and say, well, I wonder what grand in the you know, not grand but what uh, Gilbert did with these. And they're still in the book of Mormon. We don't necessarily read them because, you know, we read verses, we don't read sentences. We don't actually go for complete thoughts, you know, just how they were broken up for us. Uh, but I'm reading through these and I'm going, wait a minute, this sentence doesn't end. There's, there's nothing happening here. Um, and so that led to, well, what is happening? You know, what do we see with incomplete sentences? And that led to a discussion in the uh, printed-upon paper, or the, well, engraven book, uh, where I start looking at incomplete sentences as uh, artifacts of the 19th century English production of the text, the dictation of the text. And you get these particular incomplete sentences when the sentence has multiple internal clauses. And basically what happens is Joseph is dictating, he loses track of what's going on. He's got these clauses in there, and he kind of forgets what the beginning of the sentence was. Doesn't forget necessarily the meaning. And so two things will happen every once in a while. They're simply left unresolved. And then in other times they have a process that's called repetitive resumption, which is basically, oh shoot, I messed this one up. Let me start over, and you start with the beginning of the sentence and go on and finish it.
0: And is that and something I think the present is that something Scallion and Carmack have dealt with in their critical edition? Because I see you you touch on that in your in your notes in Plates of Mormon.
2: Yeah, yeah, they. Um, Skousen has looked at that and specifically you know outlines those, so you know these ideas of incomplete sentences he's as with everything in the text he's done better than any of the rest of us will ever do uh, so it wasn't that I had discovered them and he hadn't uh, that certainly isn't it because I discovered them and had to try to see if I could figure out what was going on uh, so my contribution to it is the argument that these things are caused by limitations of short-term memory where we're trying to remember something long enough to repeat it and you know scientists have looked at these kinds of things in short-term memory and how many items we could hold in a list and for how long can you hold them before you start losing them and all of those things when you apply them to the the way or the places where we have incomplete sentences. They're all things that have a high tax on memory because you have these multiple internal clauses. So that's not something that Skousen was looking at. You know, his is descriptive. He's not trying to explain why. Uh, and I think what that does is it says, you know, here's Joseph Smith and dictating the translation, and he's the, the meaning is in his mind. He's not reading it word for word, which is the difference that Skousen and I have had about the nature of translation for decades now. Uh, we, we fundamentally disagree on that point, but I think this evidence is pretty strong that, uh, that Joseph was, um, was translating meaning, and that's why these sentences get lost. If you were reading them, there, there's no way to get lost, and if you're writing you can always go back to the beginning of the sentence and find out what it was. you know you only lose track of these things you know in an oral uh presentation now, here's the part about that whole book that I found most fascinating, and I don't know how many people will ever extract this from it.
0: uh what I did that they will book now on in,
2: yeah, <laughs> they will now if they will yeah, as long as they listen to you because everybody does right
0: uh, well, they will when we have you on yes that's right uh.
2: So in the, in the book engraven, uh, I put in the 19th century section, uh, the layer of creation of what is created, this English text, the elements that belong to the 19th century. And this element of short-term memory, uh, the t- memory taxation issue showing up in the dictation, uh, I think really belongs as an element of the 19th century and not the Levite text however when you get to the nephite text one of the elements that i believe demonstrates that there had to have been a written original text so not necessarily the one that joseph is reading but the one that he's translating however you want to define that the text that was actually written has such places in it where that same concept of repetitive resumption that was used to restart after a dictation, you know, memory fault of, of missing the beginning and starting over. That same technique is used in the text, but in places where there is so much intervening text that to be able to remember what it was that you're supposed to say to get back to the beginning would be such a huge memory tax that the only explanation is that it was written and you could go back and read it and say, okay, this is the sentence I have to repeat after I get through with that introduction. The longest of those, and and we all know because of the way Orson Pratt broke things up, we're all aware in Alma's chapter 11, where we get the anteons, and we get this, you know, list of weights and measures, and we wonder why it's in there, because we really kind of get bored with it, try to find something interesting, but there's this long section in there, And it's long. What we miss because of the way Orson cut it is that just before that time, there is the introduction, then there's the insertion of this text, and then there is a repeated thing at the end that goes back to what was cut off and and is actually part of now our previous chapter. But there's a repetitive resumption there. And that is so long that there's no way you hold that in memory. You know, if Joseph's going to have a problem with three phrases, there's no way he's going to remember that. But it works, and it's there. And it's there because that's an ancient technique of how you put an insertion in and then return to the planned text. Uh, So I, I think it's absolutely fascinating that this same concept of repetitive resumption pretty much tells us that Joseph Smith was dictating the text orally but that he was translating a text that was already written. I, I think it's fascinating that we have that; those two things so similar, but pointing to only one possible conclusion, which is basically what Joseph said he did. So, that I found that one interesting. We'll
1: see if the other people pick it up,
2: or you know, enough people listen to the explanation where they go, "Oh, yeah, that's
1: what he's talking about." There, there was a fascinating um, study back in the 1970s, by a a professor of English. And and she wrote a short—her name's Eleanor Partridge. She did a short little paper on the characteristics of Joseph Smith's personal writing style, and as they were found in in the lectures on faith and in the Book of Mormon. And essentially what she's doing is— Uh, helping us establish, well, maybe I can step back and say that I don't think there's anyone, including Royal Skousen, who doesn't believe there's a divine element and a human element, (laughs) meaning Joseph Smith, to the translation process where the rubber meets the road is how much divine element and and how much human element is involved. And of course, Skaen would would you know make it you know approaching 99% or some some high number for the divine element and and he would probably tend to minimize the human element and some others would would, um, have a little bit greater percentage of a human element, if I can describe it that way. And Ele- Eleanor Partridge's where, where you
2: get work, to, yeah, I just say where you get to the secular explanation, which is one hundred percent Joseph. So yeah, yes. there's that
1: range. Yes, and so so there's some, yeah there's some kind of range. So Eleanor Partridge's work shows that that perhaps at least in some ways that that human element um, is is significant, at least in the writing style and in. in for, for those who went on a foreign language-speaking mission, you you realize that you could have 10 people translate something and do a really good job of it, but each one of those translations might be a, a little bit different, and we also see another reflection of that where you look at all the myriad translations of the Bible, and most of them do a reasonable job whether it's the King James or the New Revised Standard Version or the Contemporary English Version or the Good News Bible or, you know, Moffat's or what, you know, there are dozens and dozens, and they're all a little bit different, but most of them are, are pretty pretty good in, in many ways. Yeah, I, I've got a chapter in the Engraven book where I'm talking about translating
2: meaning, where I'm looking at that concept of translation where you translate what the text means, not word for word. And one of the examples in there comes from Alan Christensen and his understanding of Quiche. And this same person has two different versions of the Popol Vuk, one that is written for the general English reader, and it reads like English, but is clearly related to and translated from the Quiche. And then he's got a word for word translation of the K'iche'. And you can see where the one comes from the other, but the Quiche feels in English kind of stilted and choppy. In the original, if you've understood the original, I mean, it's elegant, it's poetic, but the same man understood the text and he had to translate it for two different audiences. You know, one that was interested in knowing what that, you know word-for-word word translation was and the other was just to read it for understanding And so, the same person produced two different translations um and, and uh, it's pretty dramatic that that kind of thing happens uh, there's another book that i cite in there uh, is it donald hofstadter anyway
0: yeah his one about music right
2: but, well it, it's a, a poem a french poem and he you know, writes, you know, puts this French poem in the original, and then he translates it like 100 different ways, very same poem, and says, you know, here's a word for word. Here's one that tries to reproduce the whimsy of the text, and this tries to reproduce the meter of the text, and,
0: yeah, you know, all of it
2: basically saying that translation loses
0: something. He, he's always and been really hard, hard for me. Size. I mean, he did that uh, Gerdel Escher-Bach it is one, probably the first one I ever read from him. And after that, I was completely lost. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I know which book you're talking about. It, it's a, in praise of the music of language, but wow.
1: Well, u- ultimately here, it's the theories of translation. What what are you trying to convey? Do you want a, more of a word-for-word word I- idea, which you have in the New Revised Standard Version, which is why all the scholars like it? And in some... Um, readers would like a concept-by-concept more in a spoken language, and if if you gravitate towards that, maybe the contemporary English version would be more of a favorite. And looking at the Book of Mormon, it's so amazing because you have these elements that Royal Skousen grasps and focuses on which show very specific literalness, for instance, untranslated words and and some of his in in over what he calls tight control, and then you have other elements which seem to show a, a little bit more of of loose control. You know, you've got baptism before the time of Christ, and you have the word Christ before right, the right. time of Christ, and and s- some other things that uh, most traditional scholars would would gasp at, but but are for Um, lay people and and modern believers in Jesus perfectly logical and appropriate translation. So it's a fascinating book that doesn't really fit any predefined theory of translation.
2: Yeah, we we all have to kind of guess. We don't really know what Joseph was doing, so we kind of have to figure it out from whatever evidence is there, and obviously there's such a mountain of evidence that as we've talked about, you know, it
1: depends on what you're focusing on. Yeah. It it would, well, what else would you like, we've got about 10 minutes left here or or so, what else you want to share with our audience about about your book and what they will find when they take a look at it?
2: Uh, let's see, let's start with uh, engraving. At the very end of engraving, uh, we had talked recently about uh, I think it was the last hour we were talking about the title page of the Book of Mormon. Or was it now that we were talking about it? What were we talking about this? Uh, <laughs> but the idea that it, you know, that it talks about it both. Uh, the restoration of Israel, and then you know, and also that Jesus is the Christ, the Eternal God. Moroni know, knew what his father was writing about, knew was the reason why his father wrote. And Moroni, when he put this title page in, says, "Here's the two things. This is what my dad did." Uh, at the very end, when I'm talking about how Mormon used his sources, uh, it goes into an explication of how Mormon fulfilled those two purposes. Um, and Mormon, you know, if if he was just going to say Jesus is the Christ and Israel could be redeemed, that's a paragraph. And he wrote a lot more than that. Because in the ancient world, you don't just say it. You, you show it through Repetitive history through the way things are built, uh, and Mormon's art was that he showed how those things would happen. And so, the the end of that I think is some new information on how Mormon showed those two things so that were his two purposes. Now, as far as plates of Mormon goes, you know we've talked about the fact, fact that I hope it's somewhat disruptive and people you get a new experience with the Book of Mormon, and it's the same Book of Mormon, it's the same Gospel that's there. You're just going to get a little bit different um, experience with it. And one of the things that I think is different is that it uses a different logic for how paragraphs are put together. Uh, we, We have ideas about, you know, what's supposed to be a cohesive paragraph in modern English. Well, there weren't any paragraphs, and when the Nephites wrote... They didn't have any paragraphs. When you are an ancient oral culture just getting into literacy, you tend to borrow the elements of an oral culture in your literature. And so the organization tends to go on not punctuation, which are visible elements, but words, concepts, things that are repeated so that you know, okay, now a new idea comes. And the obvious one is, and it came to pass and some of those have actually been removed later and i have them all put back because of you know they were there in the printer's manuscript but i have them beginning paragraphs because i think that's what they were intended to do and it came to pass moves the text through time and then there's a second one that's a companion which is and now and those begin paragraphs but those are paragraphs at the same time so you get and it came to pass, and it came to pass, and it came to pass. These things move through time. And it came to pass that so-and-so, and now it's an event that happened during that same time frame as the last end that came to pass. So the way the paragraphs are constructed, I think more, more visually represents the way the semantic markers were put into the text to be able to say, this is a new idea if you are hearing it. Rather than reading it, and I suspect that most people assumed that someone would read the text to someone else because that's what you did with ancient literature—you didn't read it yourself; someone read it to you.
0: Well, it it goes so, back to it goes back to uh, some of the theories about Homer and uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey that they started. Those kinds of things, yeah. They they started as oral tales, if you will, that were shared around by bards who would. Travel around and tell these yeah. stories in return for food room and board um and eventually they were gathered together and put together um, There's a lot of theory about that with regard to the to the Hebrew Bible, but I don't yes. know about the Book yeah, of Mormon think, because if if we if if I understand it correctly, they were writing right from the drop I mean, oh they were yes. Absolutely. Uh, but again, one
2: of the sections in the engraven book talks about the elements of morality that show up. And in the text of the Book of Mormon, although it talks about them writing, I think the evidence is there that it was uh, a limited literacy. Uh, you had some people who could read and write, but not all. And that corresponds to the ancient world. Uh, you know, a high rate of literacy would have been 18%. Uh, and, and you may not have had that in the New World. But they were incipient um, writing uh, or incipient literature in that elements of orality were still available. And so, again, in the engraven book, it talks about those elements of orality that are preserved uh,
1: in the Book of Mormon. Yes,
0: yeah, it's chapter 9.
1: What, one of the things that... Uh that we have in modern English that you wouldn't have had either in Greek or in Hebrew is all the punctuation. So you can see where sentences start or end, and and a lot of these Sort of filler words and, and phrases that drive us crazy, you know, and it came to pass, and it <laughs> came to pass, and it came to pass. They, they sort of served that function of, oh, here's here's the end of a thought, and here's the beginning of a new one, without all the well, they, capital letters they, and punctuation, they, and you things. know, and it came right. to
0: pass. That was that's almost an evidence of an oral orality in the culture because you have similar phrases in Homer. You get. Dawn sure. with her rose-colored fingers, or I can't oh, yeah. remember the sure, phrase. It sure. depends on the translator. Yeah, and,
2: and interestingly enough, you get them in Maya. Maya has words for the very same thing. In fact, the Mayanists had to change their translation from uh, and it came to pass to it happened because the Mormons got, you know, too excited about and it came to pass. <laughs> uh, but but the meaning is there. That's what it means. And And the same verb is it happened, it happens, it will happen. Yes, uh, you know, so it's it's moving things through time, and the literature, you know, does that, uh, and it comes out of the oral tradition. There's a lot of other elements of orality that you find, you know, cropping up in the text. I, I think that again is is part of what's fascinating, is that you know Joseph was not, I mean, he was part of an oral culture, but the literature of the time was much more developed and had much less. Morality in it than what we find uh, in the Bible, in the Book of Mormon.
0: So years ago, I interviewed um, one of the editors of the Study Koran from Oxford. Mm, and uh, he called in from Oman or wherever he was, and we talked about it in the translations, and uh, it was a, a, a real good interview for, with, my, with my regular program in St. George. I asked him at the end, I said, how did this affect you? to be able to spend the last 10 years, uh, translating and studying this Holy Book. And he gave a very profound answer about how much it had influenced his life and his life of his wife and his children and everything else. I would ask you the same thing. I mean, you've been working on the Book of Mormon as a primary focus brand. I mean, if, if it was 12 years from 2007, when second witness was published and probably before that, um, we're talking. We're we're talking close to well well over three decades, of yeah. a real emphasis on the Book of Mormon. I'm surprised you're with us. You should be translated <laughs> by now, right? <laughs> I have my I theories that about that. Like, not even knowing you, but I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna speculate. But. What? Uh, how, how, i going
2: to say, If you'd have known me, you'd know exactly why.
0: <laughs> I don't want to turn this into something it's not. <laughs> but no. um, seriously, no. though, I I just would ask: How do you feel this has really influenced you in your life?
2: It's it's sort of hard to explain because the 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 way scholars try to approach the world. Is often very different and the way it affects those of us who have you know who pretend to scholarship uh, are very different and so where it'd be wonderful I could say you know this this has transformed me into a wonderful spiritual being and you know I glow when I walk outside it yeah no Uh, but I'll tell you what it has done it has the word is reified, made real, made, made solid, Nephi and, and Mormon. Those two men, uh, I, I know them. I understand them. Uh, I know what they were talking about. I know what they were feeling. I know what they were trying to do. Uh, th- this is not hypothetical for me anymore. Uh, when I was, even when I was doing Second Witness and Levina Fielding Anderson was my editor, she said, You have this real problem of not being able to distinguish whether you're writing in the past tense or the future or the present. Because I would talk about what Nephi is doing and what Mormon is doing. I mean, yeah, you're right. I you know, and we're at the same time period. We're we're contemporaries, folks. So yeah, this is much more real than saying, well, I believe in the Book of Mormon. That that's that's too easy a sentence. Everybody says that. Um, the, you know, this is a real text written by real people.
0: It's kind uh, of a and like it's here's complex and it's exciting. Yeah, it's kind of like here's where Lehigh's wrong. <laughs> yeah,
2: something similar to that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, to the point where and this is one where Grant Hardy and I disagree. I mean, he really thinks Marana is wonderful, and I think Moroni is kind of a hack writer. Not nearly as good as his father. <laughs> And, you know, I mentioned things like that. And my wife says, oh, you should not say that in public. You should not say that Moroni, Moroni is a hack writer.
0: I promise you we're not going to edit out that statement. We're probably going to lead that on the website.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have Brand
0: Gardner says Moroni is a hack writer. Yeah, I, the, can yeah, I can see the headline now in, in the right? Salt Lake City yeah. Messenger. Well, uh, <laughs>
2: yeah, yep, well, so much for my membership in the church. Thanks, guys.
0: <laughs> we got it out of you eventually.
1: That's right. The three people who think he's a hack writer: Gerald, and Sandra Tanner, and Brent. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Well, um, in any parting, parting thoughts, we're we're just about out of time, gentlemen. I I want to thank you, Brent, for coming on. You've You've shared a lot oh, of great information fun. about the text of, of the Book of Mormon, the chapters we we're covering, and, and your wonderful work about the Book of Mormon. Maybe I'll ask you this real quick. What, what do you have uh, in store for the future? What are you working on right now? Nothing new at the moment. It's the first time in 30 years, I guess,
2: to where <laughs> I haven't
1: really known what my next project is. This, this is um, sort, sort I of smell a mission. The Sabbath of, yeah, of but, yeah, a little bit of a hiatus for a minute. Well, that's actually Something good. like that.
0: Well, we appreciate your book reviews. Those will probably keep your hand in until you think of something bigger. Yeah, <laughs> no yeah we'll try that. Okay. You bet. Uh, I I can tell you somebody from Interpreter is working on a uh, review of the Annotated Book of Mormon. Uh, it's up to about 30,000 words already, but uh,
1: maybe i oh will take a stab <laughs> at it too. There you go. There you go. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. This has been the Interpreter Foundation's radio show for the week. We invite you to join us each Sunday evening from 7 until 9 p.m. for Interpreter Radio. Terry Hutchison, Martin Tanner, and Brant Gardner signing off for this evening. And, Brant, thank you again for being with us Absolutely. tonight. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Brant. Good night.